a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. Organic branding has become increasingly relied upon by consumers as a means of independent confirmation of food safety and of ethical production. The requirements for a product to get this organic branding, however, is often determined by a very conservative and narrow view of what inputs and practices can be classified as natural or acceptable. To consider this phenomenon, our next agriminder is Owen Gwilliam. Owen is the Head of Standards and Regulations at Australian Organic Limited. Owen has carried out organic auditing, training and consulting in 15 countries and has served the Australian organic industry at all levels of certification. Owen is also an educator across various fields from organic farming, composting and permaculture design right through to economics. Oh, and I notice on the website for Australian Organic Limited, your company, you say that organic food means food how it should be, a conscious choice to work with nature and care for our environment and those who live in it, rather than rely on synthetic means. Now, I'm interested in that definition of organic because it doesn't mention nutrition, it doesn't mention taste, it doesn't mention anything other than the kind of more esoteric reasons why people might get involved in organics. Is that deliberate or? Uh, Well, organic means different things to different people and it's a really broad standard that so much comes into it. So I guess, yeah, that's one definition. That's one little uh, way of describing organic farming. Personally, I think of organic farming simply as best practice farming. So yeah, it often relies more on working with nature and it tends to rely less on synthetic inputs. But there's many ways you could describe organic farming, that's for sure. But when you say best practice farming, a lot of the innovative technologies that have been developed by us over the last, or even recent years, let alone the last 100 years, are rejected by organic farmers because they're based on synthesising what nature used to produce, but but now we can make it ourselves. I use an example of some fertilisers like urea, for example. I mean, it's nothing more natural than urea, but yet because it's synthesised from, you know, fossil fuels or whatever, it's banned as an input. The end product is probably no different. I mean, I think the general consensus in the papers I read is that there's about a 20% hit in production from organic farming versus using all of the current innovations to their maximum. Yeah, right. So there's a fair bit in uh, your question there. So to start with why we don't necessarily immediately use the latest available technologies, there's uh, one of the underlying principles in organic standards development is the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle being that we might not immediately use technologies until we're totally sure that they're absolutely 100% safe. And if we don't need them, we might not use them at all. So in actual fact, we do allow some synthetics. So we can talk about that. And I'd love to talk about synthetic nitrogen, as you've mentioned there. But I mean, our farmers, though, the food safety in particular, and the testing that has to go on on chemicals that are used, you know, is extraordinary. Uh, Some would say over-cautious. So the chance of food safety issues are something which everybody is focused on, not just organic farmers. So, yeah, if we can go back to a couple of the other elements of your first question, if that's okay. 
So precautionary principle underlies all of the organic standard setting development process. And there are many examples through history where we should have been more cautious. So organic standards development and, and the development of organic farming is actually very innovative, but it is a conservative development process. In Silicon Valley, there's the slogan, move fast, break things, and that's fine. But when you're talking about global food security, organic farmers and organic standard setters move slowly and deliberately, and we won't apologise for that. So you mentioned in the earlier question about synthetics. In actual fact, we do allow some synthetics, which might be a surprise to you, but only where we've worked out that we're absolutely 100% sure that they're safe. So what I'm trying to say is we're not total Luddites and we don't just want to go back to sure. the dark ages. We we do adopt new technologies and in actual fact, in a lot of cases, we have to be more innovative because we've got less to work with because we are following the precautionary principle. We'll talk about urea and ammonia, for example. Well, urea is an interesting one. Urea and ammonia is a great example. It's a, a macronutrient. It's very abundant in the atmosphere in a gaseous form and through what was discovered and what is known as the Harbour-Bosch process after the two gentlemen who came up with it, they were able to fix that nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And when I say fix, I mean basically make it solid in uh, a soluble form so that it can be transported around and used for different things. And it's an absolute breakthrough. And it's interesting what organic farmers rely upon for their, uh, for their nitrogen source is a, a complex soil ecosystem of nitrogen-fixing bacteria, leguminous crops, livestock impact, animal manures... Yeah, I'm, 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 what I'm trying to get to with that is is urea is a very natural product. Why do we care where it, how it's made? Okay, so there are a couple of elements to that. So firstly, I'd like to say that while it might be the chemical formula might be identical, there are there might be other things that we don't know how to measure yet that are actually different. So you look at two items that have been produced in different ways. To the naked eye, they might look identical. Once you drill down to chemical formulas, they might look different. Well, even if the chemical formulas are the same, the level of impurities or the concentration of different impurities in one form of nitrogen versus another. But the same applies to urea. There might be a manure, which you do allow to be used because mm. you don't, depends what the animal's been eating. The, you know, the urea can have all sorts of things in it that, you know, may, may, we don't know what they are either. Yeah. So there's good reason for urea to not be allowed. One of them being, okay, so when you deliver urea to the paddock or anhydrous ammonia or whatever soluble form of synthetic nitrogen, only a certain amount of it stays in the soil profile and is up is taken up by the plant and a fair degree of it ends up draining deeper into the soil profile or running off immediately into the rivers, causing eutrophication of rivers, causing algal blooms and then into the ocean where it causes ocean dead zones, fish kills, and, you know, the death of the Great Barrier Reef. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons we're seeing a lot of growth in organic production up in North Queensland adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef uh, to reduce those nutrient discharges into the ocean. So synthetic soluble nitrogen is much more like little leach. Uh, nitrogen that's complexed in, in a, a compost, for instance, is uh, more likely to stay in the paddock and be available to the plant. But it's not Organic forms of nitrogen are not available directly to the plant either. They they make it into the plant through a complex soil ecosystem. And one of the issues with synthetic urea is that when you start feeding your crops with synthetic nitrogen sources, the all of the multitude of bacteria and microorganisms in the soil that fix nitrogen naturally are no longer needed, so they tend to go away. Because it's not just 
rhizobium and legumes that we're talking about, the latest work by the Australian scientist, Dr. Christine Jones, on nitrogen cycling in organic soils is really fascinating. There's hundreds more nitrogen-fixing microorganisms that, that live freely that don't have to actually live in association with a legume. When you start feeding your system with synthetic soluble source, those microbes start to go away. And it gets worse. If you're feeding that system with anhydrous ammonia, for instance, the the point of injection of the anhydrous ammonia into the soil, it's it's actually quite toxic. And it basically sterilizes that little part of the soil, that little part of the the rhizosphere. What ends up happening, and I've, I've heard this anecdotally as well, many, many times on many farms that I've been to with conventional high input soluble synthetic fertilizer systems is you get addicted to that system because you lose the natural nitrogen cycle of the soil that you used to have. Another thing that synthetic nitrogen causes in the soil, well, it's the same thing. It causes the death of some of those microbes. So some of those microbes are, what they're doing is suppressing disease. So there's work recently that demonstrates that organic soils are more disease suppressive soils. And this is fantastic stuff that's been well well documented and well demonstrated now. So organic soils with a complex ecosystem of different microorganisms is far more resilient. You're less likely to, to have plant pathogens breed up and end up destroying your crop. So not only do you get addicted to, synth- to the synthetic nitrogen when you when once you start using it, but you also then have to start using more fungicide and the cycle continues. So when you go organic, it can take a while to wean yourself back off the synthetic nitrogen. So are you saying that the impurities or the things we don't know about in the synthetic nitrogen are making this, and also it's much higher availability, is changing the soil's kind of microbial structure compared with the same formula that would be in, say, you know, animal manure or whatever that you might put on organically? Not so much the impurities, but yes, the form. So the fact that it's a inorganic salt form as opposed to a complex compost type form. Yeah. I mean, urea is urea. Yeah, but you're, the quantity of pure urea that you're putting on in synthetic form versus in uh, something okay, like Okay, so it's more about the quantity quite... that's going on rather so sure. there's less of it. So if you want to get a big crop, you put like, let's take maize, for example, you put a lot of um, uh, nitrogen on, particularly at the early stages, to get that big leafy plant. So you couldn't physically put enough manure on to get the same effect? Possibly not. So Justice von Liebig, when he came up with the modern fertiliser theory and discovered that nitrogen was the main limiting factor for the growth of a plant, which again was an amazing breakthrough, he came up with the NPK model, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Of course, later in life, he added calcium and sulphur to the list of what he thought was necessary. And then later in life, again, he went back on all of his work and realised that what this would lead to would be depletion of the soil, of the trace elements in the soil, which is exactly what has happened in farming systems where you rely on where you address the just the most limiting factor first, the nitrogen, for instance. Mm-hmm. I don't think so that's that you effectively would... where your hit comes from in production because what we're saying is, okay, that what we're doing by playing with the, 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 the proportions of these different nutrients, we're actually getting a bigger yield and more production. So we'll cut that production back to what it might have been just, you know, if we were growing it wild by using these more slowly available, lower concentrated type fertilisers. Yeah, it's interesting with the productivity. So in certain situations, yes, you'll, you'll get a lower yield using organic methods. 
And it's, it's highly variable. It's hard to get good data on this. I've worked with farmers who, in the first year of going organic, have had the best crop in the region. But in other cases, no, that won't happen. The best sort of data we can find is um, a trial that was conducted by the Rodale Institute. The, the paper was published in 2015, I believe, and it was called their Long-Term Farming Systems Trial. Okay. And it was a 30-year trial comparing organic production methods to non-organic production methods. And in more recent years, they added GMO as an additional treatment. So it was organic versus non-organic versus non-organic using GMO. And the findings were interesting. And absolutely, the in some years, organic yields were lower. And it was around about those numbers you've mentioned, that 20%, sometimes more. But interestingly, in the drought years or in the difficult uh, years, the organic crops would then outperform the conventional. Okay. So the finding from the report was actually that the yields are similar and more consistent, more reliable. And that makes sense if you think about it. So because one of the things we do with organic farming is we build soil carbon. So we take carbon back out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil where it's supposed to be, which kickstarts a positive feedback cycle and you get more and more soil microbes coming about who start fixing nitrogen for you and who start suppressing disease. So things start to look up after a few years when you Mm -hmm. convert to organics. So the the outcome of that trial for 30 years, that's the the best study we can find, was actually that it's similar. Yes, sometimes it's lower. And and certainly in some situations, it's going to be way lower. In some situations, if you're farming organically, you just won't grow the crop that you might be able to grow using conventional systems. I can give you an example uh, in a marginal soil type, especially if it's an alkaline soil, so a, a low organic matter, low CC, low, marginal soil out west, opportunity cropping type country, especially if it's alkaline, it's very hard to, you run into problems with phosphorus availability. So if you're allowed to use superphosphate, which is acid-treated rock phosphate, you're fine. The, the availability of the phosphorus is fine. But if it's an alkaline soil condition and you can't use an acid-treated phosphate source, then you're going to really struggle to grow a crop there. But that's one of the things in organic standards, one of the underlying principles is that you grow regionally appropriate, traditional, historically normal foods in places Mm. where they grow well. Mm. So Mm. in some situations, you'll see huge yield drops going organic. In some situations, you won't bother trying. I mean, it's not only fertility. Another example would be trying to grow stone fruit or grapes on the North Coast which people do now, and non-organically, and they use heaps of fungicides. Mm. Uh, If you're an organic farmer, you know you can't use those synthetic fungicides. You'll probably decide not to grow that crop there, and that's fine. I'm interested to know how much progress we've made in that area, though, of productivity in the last 50 years. In 1971, the US Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, said, before we go back to organic agriculture in this country, meaning the USA, somebody must decide which 50 million Americans we're going to let starve or go hungry. It's a pretty kind of strong statement. And I'm sure we've come a long way since then, both in organic and non-organic agriculture. But what have been the biggest strides forward in organic agriculture to overcome that issue? Well, I kind of think it was mostly nonsense what he said, to be honest, (laughs) that it would lead to you know, starvation if we were to go organic. That's a crazy assertion. We we could definitely, we're, we already have enough food to, to feed the current population, but depending on which data you read, we, we produce somewhere between one and a half to two times the food we actually need to, to feed the current population and therefore we'll have enough even in 50 years, even at 10 billion. 
the, the problem of food scarcity is not a production problem. It's an economic problem. Yeah, but Owen, I mean, I started this series with the statement from the head of the CSIRO of the day, Megan Clark, who said that in the next 50 years, there'll be more food eaten than the whole history of humanity. We currently, forgetting about organics, we currently only know how to produce 30% of that. So we're clearly not at the point yet where we know how we're going to feed that extra 70% with our, all our technologies. Now, I, I also am very optimistic, like you, that we'll get there, but we haven't got there yet. You know, if, if you base it on current levels of scientific knowledge, we can think we have, we can dream about it. And I know that food's produced in the wrong parts of the world and we have a lot of wastage and we've got a lot of issues to sort out, but the facts remain, though, we've still got a lot of work to do. And I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, how much work has been done to improve the productivity of organics and how much more is there available to be done, still keeping that that organic principle that you're guided by, but to make it so that we can actually not, that we're constantly taking a hit on quantity. Yeah, so I want to mention again that the problem of hunger is not a production problem. We've got one and a half to two times as much food as we'll need and our production is increasing faster than the population's increasing. So, I mean, I've been hearing this since since university. I studied at Sydney Uni, like yourself, I think. Um, finished there 18 years ago, studied agriculture, and they've been saying since then, how are we going to feed the growing population? And it's a really popular marketing meme for, especially for technology companies, agri- agricultural technology companies, to say, because it really pulls on the heartstrings, doesn't it? I mean, we, you know, we've got to feed, but we can't have people going hungry. But the fact of the matter is that hunger is an economic problem or a political and social problem. It's not a production problem. We already have enough food to feed the 10 billion. We can easily produce more if the economics is improved. So, But we've got reducing lands. We've got more saline lands. Uh, we've got issues with climate change. We've got so many issues fighting against us. We've got water issues. Water, plenty in some places, but it's falling in the wrong places. We don't conserve much water. Yeah, uh, and really, that's great. Do you really think that we're growing our food production faster than the population? Yeah, that is that is what's happening, yeah, in the last decade from the from the from from what I've read. Um, but you've touched on some great subjects there, and, and it's really cool because organic farming addresses all of those. So, Owen, in, in order to be certified organic and meet the criteria for being an organic farm, as in certified organic, what does the farmer have to do? Well, there's a lot to it. You have to have a plan. So you have to have an organic management plan, which is where you write up exactly how you're going to deal with all of the challenges that you're going to face in converting your farm to organic. That'll include pest and disease control, fertility management, um, animal welfare, uh, and a whole range of aspects. So... It's not just about not using the synthetic pesticides. That's a big part of it, certainly. But it's also about proactive management and environmental management. Uh, Biodiversity is covered in there. Uh, You're not allowed to pollute. You're not allowed to degrade the soil. You have to manage soil erosion. You have to increase or maintain your soil carbon. So every year, increase or maintain soil carbon, increase or maintain biodiversity. that's measurable? It is, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I've seen some great increases over the years in my work. It's just fantastic to see because it only takes a few percentage points of soil carbon increase and we don't have an atmospheric carbon problem anymore. Like 
organic farming is really important and for so many different reasons. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, so animal welfare is in there as well. So best practice animal welfare and more so these days in organic standards development, which is a fluid process. Organic standards are developed by lots of organisations globally and more so in recent years, it's now also including social aspects. So freedom of association, collective bargaining and workplace health and safety is even in the standard. Ooh, that sounds very political. That's So this is the when we're starting to cross from what's actually to do with production of a clean, green product into something which is making commentary about political arguments, about social responsibilities and and so on, which, you know, there are two sides to that argument. It really has nothing to do with the quality of the food, though. It doesn't affect the... So, so those social aspects in the organic standards don't seem to make any difference in Australia. If you're complying with the law here, you're right, basically. Right. But it can have an important effect in developing countries, which is where organics is also... It's also growing very quickly there, and I've seen some great benefits for smallholders in developing countries. And so, so can, the, the child labour thing, you know... That, yeah, that, so if in a developing country, in our view, the wages we're paying was effectively slave labour that would stop them being classified as organic? Uh, we don't talk about wage control specifically on the organic standards at this stage. That's more the realm of fair trade certifications. Mm. I think GM is not allowed. That's right. And that why, comes why on, is that? Yeah, so precautionary principle. Once again, so a new technology, if we're not 100% sure that it's safe and if we don't need it, we won't use it. I, what about gene editing like CRISPR and so on? Uh, fits into the same category for bi- because biodiversity. Because in Australia, gene editing isn't put in the same category as GM. For example, the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator doesn't look at gene editing. He only looks at genetic modification as in splicing. In Europe, they look at them together. How do you discern that difference? From the standards point of view, it's the European approach that we're following. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's the organic standards development happens over time by various groups. Anyone can get involved. But precautionary principle is underlying. So, and and the need. So, we'll only adopt new technology if we really need it and if we're really sure it's safe. So, I can't see GMOs being allowed anytime soon because we have all of the genetic material we need. We have regionally appropriate, historically normal food, crops, and livestock that can feed everyone everywhere already. So that's our... Well, I don't want to go down that road too far, but in Asia, there's a huge amount of rice that's lost because of submergence in heavy monsoon rains. In India, there are wild rices which actually uh, have quite high resistance to being submerged, both of them completely natural. Both of them are a riser genus, exactly the same genus, and we're not talking taking genes out of whales and putting them into humans or anything like that. Under, under the principle of gene splicing, you could take that resistant gene out of the wild rice in India, and this is actually what, what happened, and put it into the rice they grow in, in Asia, and within a couple of years have a submergent resistant rice. But because of a ban or a perception that GM was not a good thing, they had to do exactly the same thing by Mendelian breeding, ended up with exactly the same point but it took from 1993 to 2008 to get to the same point instead of 1993 to 1995. So precautionary principle or not, we're talking about the same, exactly the same end result, which both have to be tested to see if there's any any food safety issues. I don't understand why that makes any more organic because it came from ordinary breeding than if someone actually put his hand in the, in the lotto drum and lift out the numbers he wanted. 
Yeah, that's an interesting example that you've provided. It just still comes back to precautionary principle. Um, so why why couldn't they actually grow the Indian varieties in Asia? Well, the Indian variety they discovered in 1993 didn't really produce grain to a significant extent to make it a commercial variety. So whereas our varieties, of course, are, are heavy panicles of grain, so they're very productive. So you couldn't just physically get enough grain off if you just grew a crop of the Indian variety. But it was only a couple of genes that were responsible. So by being able to splice those genes straight across into the variety we use, they immediately give that submergent resistance. And eventually they did it by pollination and Mendelian breeding and they got to that point. But it took them, you know, 15 years to do instead of probably two or three years. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, the genetics are an interesting field and the Human Genome Project was so exciting when it was happening. And then, of course, what we've learned since then is that gen- genes don't actually explain everything. That environmental factors and this new field of epigenetics comes into play. And then it's like, oh, well, hang on, the mitochondria inside the cell, they've got different DNA themselves, and that can be influenced by the environment, and that can be passed down by generation. So there's more going on than we know. So your example's great, and, and you know, if it is identical, and if there is no negative effect from, from, from that being done, then great. I'll be very happy with that outcome. I hope that GMOs are completely but safe. But if someone said it was GM, you wouldn't allow it no, to be No, it wouldn't registered. be allowed. That's no, correct. No, that's it. So in this precautionary principle, how long are you cautious for to, in order for something suddenly to become safe? I mean, any new food has to be tested by food safety people, but you're saying that you're really taking it a next step beyond what they would do. How long period do you want and how much testing do you do and how do you actually make something from maybe to, no, we're happy with that. Yeah, uh, it's a really good question and I don't have an answer for it. It's how long's a piece of string. I mean, ha- how long did it take us to realise that lead was probably a bad idea in petrol until it was actually phased out? Well, organic standard setting is a, is a, is a process, is an ongoing process and these things are reassessed over time. I, it's very Do hard. things like that change quite regularly? Have you admitted a lot of new things that were originally deemed non-organic to being organic in the last 50 years? We're always assessing requests to change the standard and that happens um, over in Europe and it happens here in the National Standard Subcommittee and it happens through my organisation, Australian Organic Limited. We have our own standard, which is aligned with the national standard and we receive, I would say, dozens of requests each year to what assess... What percentage of those get approved? Uh, not very many. So we do allow some synthetics. If, it's, if you can demonstrate that it's absolutely not going to harm the environment and it's not going to harm human health and if, if, it makes sen- if that's logical. So something like copper sulphate, the, it's, uh, it's a simple metal so salt. So why was copper sulphate always allowable but urea was always not allowable? Yeah, right? it's a great distinction. They're both synthetic. So why mm. are we allowing one and not the other? Mm. So I've been through the we've, – we've discussed the, urea, the nitrogen, yeah. the problems with using synthetic nitrogen in the farming system. Yeah, yeah. The copper sulphate, yeah, we, we allow, as a fungicide in organic systems, uh, even the synthetically produced copper sulfate. There are good reasons for that. Copper sulfate is a simple metal salt. It breaks down to, uh, basically, to nutrients. It's not residual. It breaks down quickly and it's effective and we kind of need it. So the necessity is also a requirement. So in that precautionary principle guideline. So is it safe and also do we need it? Because if we didn't need it, we wouldn't allow it, even if it is safe. <laughs> So copper sulfate's a tool that's been used for farmers, by, or copper products is a tool that have been used for farmers who farmed organically for, for many years, and it was allowed, as far as I know, from the start, from the, from the early mm. days of setting the organic standards in the 80s. 
As far as animal welfare, uh, animal welfare, one person's animal welfare is another person's, you know, overkill is another person's underkill. It's a very subjective view and we've got this difference between animal welfare and animal rights, which are two completely different things. How did you decide what levels of animal welfare were required to be organic and who decided and how has that changed as attitudes changed, either making them stricter or easier either way? Yeah, so animal welfare is paramount, um, but you're exactly right. I mean, the definition of that, well, uh, ours is a very practical and traditionally farming-based definition of animal welfare. Uh, so, yeah, we still we still slaughter and process animals. We eat them. Um, livestock are an important part of a farming system. They're a requirement for a sustainable farming system. We're almost always, you need livestock in there to do the nutrient cycling. So we... In the organic standards, we care for the livestock by affording them a good quality of life, which is uh, based on their natural lifestyle as possible. Although they're you know they're domesticated animals, so so uh, let, let's take something you can measure the sure. amount of so, space you might allow sure. per beast in a yard. Now the, the law has just changed on a ship, for example. I'm just using this mm. as an example to change them from 1.6 square meters to 1.9 square meters. Does yeah. all of a sudden you change your laws to match that? Or? Well, live exports not allowed. Uh, any sort of travel more than eight hours is only allowed in restricted instances. So, to, so to give a few examples, yeah, like elect, electric prodders are not allowed. Uh, you have to have the animals living in a in a herd with their natural herd structure. You so factory farming's out, like totally out. Um, they need to be, if it's a ruminant herbivore, if it's a sheep or a cow, it's out on pasture uh, and it's moving frequently onto fresh pasture and it's with its family. What so there's some of the aspects. Chickens is a great one to discuss. So with chickens, they have to be free range at, at a minimum. As soon as they're fully feathered, they have to have outdoor access and it has to be pasture, not just denuded soil. No, no. And does that make for healthier, more organic eggs, the fact they're eating green pick in your view? I would say yes, because they're getting a more diverse feed source and they're getting some of the different amino acids that they need because amino acid source is a big issue for, for poultry production. But sorry, we're talking about Well, no, let's welfare. talk about amino acids because I noticed that the organic farm is not allowed to use synthesised amino acids, which is actually, and same with pigs, and that's quite a big hit on their production capability and feed conversion as well. What, again, is there something wrong with amino acids that, that are brought in or what, what is the reason? Because amino acid is definitely an amino acid. It doesn't have any issues with solubility or any of those things. Uh, yes, yeah, so amino acids, this is a really pointy subject in organic poultry production right now and we could talk about it for hours. In actual fact, you can use some synthetic methionine in organic poultry okay. production now and it's controversial within the industry. Really? There's a lot of people okay. saying you you don't need it, and a lot of people are saying, oh, we really need it. And there are observable health outcomes for the chickens for using synthetic synthetic methionine is the only one, really. The, the other amino acids you can use, you can produce naturally through fermentation and so on, or just through a diverse diet. Like, if they're getting outside and they're eating bugs and they're getting a bit of meat meal, the amino acid requirement, well, I... It's, it's arguable, and this is a really controversial subject within organic certification globally at the moment because uh, some operators are saying we really should be using methionine. Look at the improvements in their productivity. Some are saying improvements in animal welfare. On the other hand, you've got uh, from consumer associations globally, organic consumer associations globally, and from talking to organic consumers, they're not always especially comfortable with the idea of, 
the protein that's in the chicken meat that they are eating that's becoming them and building their muscle being sourced from a synthetic source. So it is a balancing act. Riding organic standards is a balancing act and methionine is, is right now is allowed, um, but it's with a sunset clause. So the standard setters have said five more years, guys, and then you've got to find a natural source of methionine or you've got to just, you've got to stop using the synthetic one. And I think it's great because we'll most likely find a natural source of this of this um, feed supplement in this case. So the consumers are happy. Um, I'd like to come to why people want to go organic. Why do farmers decide to go down this organic road as being a way of improving both the quality and quantity of food that we can actually provide for a hungry world in the future? Yeah, I mean, there are so many different reasons for people to go organic. Um, perhaps if we look at it first, from the consumer point of view, why there's the demand there? Because there's huge demand there. I've worked in this industry for 18 years, and when I started, the the estimation of the value of organic sales in Australia was 250 million. Uh, it's now 2.6 billion dollar industry. So we've done a 10x in the last 15 years or so. It's phenomenal demand, and well, that's actually sales. So so the demand keeps increasing, and the sales keep increasing. The um, if you look at the Ibis World studies on Australian organic agriculture for the last few years, uh, the 2016 report was, there was much fanfare about the Ibis World organic agriculture in Australia 2016 report. Well, they underestimated the growth. They were predicting um, $1.5 billion by 2022, I think it was. Well, it's only 2019 and we're already 2.6. Now, So the, what's driven that growth? Is it a perception that demand. food's not safe? Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about the demand. Yeah. Is the perception of food's not safe or is the perception that they want to make a better contribution to the environment? What's driven the, the growth yeah. from the demand point of view? Yeah, so it's a lot of organic farming. Organic food means different things to different people. Uh, certainly the good for me, so it's healthy, it's good for me, is a huge growth uh, sector in at the supermarket level. People want to buy stuff that's good for them. I suppose with all of the looming health problems that we have, I mean, what what are the statistics now on cancer? It's one in two now um, mm. and a lot of other um, uh, uh, immune disorders and so on, are, they're all on the rise, right? So people want to be healthy people that, and that's one reason people think that they want to cut their so pesticide intake. healthy nutritious or healthy sick because they're getting sick? Well, I don't know. It's a different thing to every person, but certainly um, good for me is is one of the things we keep hearing from consumers and why they spend the extra dollar to, to buy the organic food over the non-organic food. They want to cut their pesticide intake, and I agree that that's a pretty good that. idea. Yep. They might also want to increase their nutrient intake, and that's not always a guarantee, but there have been some studies that suggest that, that perhaps organic food uh, can, can be of a higher nutrient density as well. Other reasons, I mean, the reason I started eating organic were for, was purely environmental reasons. So when I was young and, and invincible, uh, I wasn't thinking, oh, gee, I better eat things that are good for me. I, I was purely buying organic for the environmental reasons because I've been to conventional farms and I've been to organic farms. And because I, I read the organic standard and I thought, oh, wow, this is really sensible environmental management. This is good for the, this is good, good for the planet. I mean, purely on the carbon, let's just talk about carbon for, for briefly. I mean, climate change has, is an important issue in people's minds these days. And if we just lock up a bit more of that carbon that's in the atmosphere back into the soil, which we can do with organic farming methods, it's easy. The problem solved, the problem of carbon emissions can be solved if we convert to organic farming globally. It's only a few percent. I haven't got the exact statistics here. So there's some of the reasons. So good for me uh, and, and good for the environment. Um, animal welfare is another reason. Um, a lot of ex-vegans who have had problems, well, with their health will only eat organic 
meat. If they're going to eat meat, they'll only eat organic meat. That's, so demand just is growing very quickly and actual sales globally and in Australia is growing exponentially. So the, the latest Ibis World study is now saying by 2024, it's going to be $4.5 billion. So that's a 16% annual year on year for the next five years. Name another sector in agriculture that's got double-digit growth rates for the last 10 years and predicted to do it for at least the next five. It's an exciting industry to work in. In the same way that the um, consumer's reasons for buying organic vary, um, farmers' reasons for going organic also varies. And earlier in the piece in the industry, there were a lot of people who were going organic because they wanted to because it felt nice and it felt natural to do it that way and that sort of thing. There is a real commercialisation of the industry happening now. So we do have operators, big big farming companies at times who are giving organics a go on a small part of their land. They're like, right, let's convert a few percent, five percent of our land and give this organic thing a go because they can see where it's moving, right? It's this huge growth sector. Uh, so the reasons are varied. I would say one of the main reasons that farmers, well, yeah, farmers are in recent times have had a bit of a rough trot. Like if you think about the the decline of rural communities and the ongoing droughts, the the debt burden. You know, it's not easy farming. So anecdotally, a lot of the farmers that I've, and I've been, as I said, to hundreds of organic farms, I'm very blessed to have been able to see these places and meet these people. Some of the reasons I hear are, one, one big one is they don't want to mix chemicals anymore. And related to that, if they're employing staff, their insurance premiums are going through the roof. They're hearing stories about court, uh, settlements about glyphosate in the States and so on, they don't want to mix the chemicals themselves and they don't want to have any staff mixing chemicals because, you know, you some of these chemicals, you you make a mistake, you spill it on your lap, you might die or or have ongoing health issues for the rest of your life. So one of the things that I hear again and again from farmers who have gone organic is, oh, it's great not having to mix chemicals anymore. Other reasons, sure, financial. So the demand is there and the if they still have everything else right in terms of proximity to market and and being able to produce the right specification of product, then yeah, they're often getting a premium. Sometimes production costs are higher, especially with with labour, for instance. They might be weeding instead of using herbicides, so they might be employing more more people on the farm, which incidentally is kind of a good thing for supporting rural communities if you think about it, right? So that's another thing that there's this huge movement towards local food and supporting rural communities again um, happening right around the world. So we've covered a lot of territory today. We've we've talked about the specific advantages and the specific aims of organic farmers. And we've talked about the potential to actually help solve the world's problem of being able to feed the world in the future. And in fact, you're suggesting that that's probably not that big of a problem. In summary, organic farming is something which I think has taken on a momentum of its own. Where do you see that growth going over the next 20 years? Yeah, it is growing so quickly. And I mean, I think Australia is a little bit behind in ways. If you travel through, and even 20 years ago, if you go to Europe, a lot of organic products on the shelf. Now it's the same in the States and throughout Asia. um, And Australia sort of seems to be catching up. Although we're ahead in some ways, Australia has the largest certified organic land area of any country. Uh, Admittedly, it's mostly extensive grazing land out west, but it's still a cool uh, feather in our cap. I mean, I think it's just going to keep going. The The demand seems so strong and the growth is so fast and the big guys are coming. Like I've worked with operators in Australia who are 
uh, multinational farming groups, they're coming in droves. So I'm really confident about the future for organic farming. Um, upholding the standard is is what I do with my organisation, Australian Organic Limited, as well as promoting the industry and supporting our members. And I think we, I mean, I don't want to make any percentage <laughs> estimates because they'll always look bad in hindsight, but I do not see the growth slowing down anytime soon. And William, thank you very much. You've got a lot of followers out there, I'm sure, and you've certainly illuminated a lot of our knowledge uh, about organic farming. Thank you for being our AgriMinder today. Thank you very much for having us. And do, uh, if I can just mention to your listeners to go and check out the Australian Organic website and download yourselves a copy of the Australian Organic Market Report, which is coming out shortly. And uh, feel free to find me on Twitter. It's just Owen William. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'll leave you with this question. All show? Or is there a real advantage to organic foodstuffs and farming methods? There's no doubt that the certified organic brand provides a very conservative confirmation of both food safety and ethical production. But is this unnecessary overkill? And will it have a huge production cost, somewhere in the order of 20% or more, without any real advantage in nutrition, taste, or certainly in Australia and New Zealand, food safety, given our very strict registration requirements for agrochemicals and inputs? Has our nervousness about the purity of everything we put in our minds caused us to unnecessarily pay the additional margins that is imposed on our urbanised and perhaps uninformed consumers for the certified organic brand on our produce? And as the proportion of organic food being produced grows, can we afford the lost production that this implies at a time when we're chasing the means of producing more food than has been eaten in the entire history of humanity? I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.